little recap of where we've been and um, then discuss the seven signs of Jesus' dominion from the Gospel of John. Dominion is a spirit. Dominion is a force. Dominion is a grace. Dominion is an anointing. Dominion is a blessing. Dominion must be taken. Dominion must be taken. Open your hand and close it. Dominion must be taken. Matthew 13, 3 through 8. Matthew 13, 3 through 8. It says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Verse 4. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside. And the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places that didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root and withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Then down in verse 18, Jesus explains what the parable's about. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. In other words, this is what I'm talking about. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, everybody say the word of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? I told you earlier, the king's domain or the king's dominion. So whenever the, anyone hears the word concerning the dominion of the kingdom of God and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches it away. You remember the seed sown by the wayside? The birds of the air came and snatched it away. So dominion must be taken because if you do not take it, it will be taken from you. It's not a passive thing that can be received. You have to take it. Then dominion must be possessed. We did an analogy a couple of weeks ago on this. You, you take a shirt at, at a clothing store and you take it to the dressing room and you put it on. You've taken it, but it's not yours yet. You haven't possessed it. You have to go to the register. You have to pay for it. You have to take it home. You have to put it on before you have possessed what you initially took off the rack. So it must be taken. Then it must be possessed. How do I possess the word? Whether the word is dominion or whether the word is whatever God is saying in any season. How do I possess the word? You have to listen and re-listen. And you have to consume it until it becomes a part of you. You have to listen to a word from God until you could quote it back. You have to listen to a message until you could recite it back, at least the high points of it. And that's how it gets taken and absorbed in your spirit and possessed. And then finally, dominion must be lived. And you can only live it when you have taken it and possessed it to the point that it's coming out in your lifestyle. And that's what you really want. That's how you know you're walking in dominion is when you start to see in your lifestyle the stuff you're hearing preached. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Now, dominion was lost in the Garden of Eden by two actions. Everyone say two actions. Amen. Most people think it was just sin, but it was two actions. There was sin first, and then there was the failure to take responsibility. What's responsibility? Break the word down. The ability to respond. And so dominion was lost by two actions. In Genesis 3, 8 and 9, go there with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. This is right after the serpent had beguiled Eve, and Eve had shared the fruit with her husband. They had sinned. They had disobeyed the word of the Lord. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Next verse. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, where are you? Notice it was the serpent, the icon for Satan that started this whole thing. 
Initially, God does not say anything to Satan. It was Eve who was first tempted and ate. Notice God does not say anything to Eve, not initially. He starts with Adam, the person he had given the dominion to. Where are you? Come and respond to this. So at this point, Adam still got the dominion. He still got the response ability. But notice what he does. Verse 10. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I have commanded you that you should not eat? Again, response ability. Give me a response. Verse 12. Watch this boy. Then the man said, Yes, ladies, this is where it started. Just <laughs> The man, the big old dominion having man that God gave him. Look what he does. The woman you gave me to be with. She gave me of the tree and I ate. Notice what Adam's done. It's very subtle. He has shifted the responsibility... And along with it, the dominion. Now he's given it to Eve. Verse 13. And the Lord God said, here's the first time. And the Lord God said to, this is the first time God has spoken directly to Eve. All the other previous communication came through Adam. Right? He was the head the scripture says in the New Testament that the man is the head of the woman, as Christ is the head of the church. So all the communication was flowing in God-ordained order. But now that he has taken the dominion and the responsibility and shifted it, God goes to the woman. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Now, the woman does what her example did. So if it's good for you, it's good for me. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now watch this next verse. Now the Lord's talking to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent. So the responsibility, the dominion started with Adam. He shifted it to Eve. She shifted it. Now the serpent has the dominion. When you fail to take responsibility, you fail to take dominion. You can never stand in dominion unless you take responsibility. Even if it's bad, even if it paints you in a bad light, even if it hurts, the moment you lose the responsibility, you have lost the dominion. Now, Adam, blame shifting and talking. Just Eve, blame shifting and talking. But notice, the serpent doesn't say nothing. He doesn't shift the responsibility. Why? Because he wants the dominion. So the serpent remains silent. Dominion has many languages. Silence is one of them. There it is on the screen. Dominion speaks multiple languages. One of them is silence. Grandpa used to tell me, if you're ever getting, you know, in a situation and, and there's something tense, you know, and somebody's, you know, he used to say jacking their jaws, you know, just talking, just bumping their gums at you, just running off at the mouth nonstop. He said, you don't really have to worry about those. Somebody's talking too much and they're talking about what they're going to do, how they're going to hurt you, how they're going to beat you down, all that kind of stuff. You, you, you don't really have to worry about those. He said, boy, it's the quiet ones. Minding their own business, not messing with anybody. He said, don't ever mess with a quiet one because the quiet ones are dangerous. Silence is a la Silence speaks. 
It's a language of dominion. So when the serpent gets the dominion, he doesn't open his mouth. Why? He's got the dominion. So verse 14, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly, you're going to go. You'll eat the dust, the earth, all the days of your life. Next verse. I'll put enmity, war, that's enmity, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy. This is the first prophecy in the Bible concerning Jesus Christ. In other words, God is saying, you may have stolen the dominion, but a son will be born from the woman, and he will crush your headship your dominion, your authority. And you're going to crush him too. You're going to crush his heel. Now, after he stole it from Adam and Eve, Satan had the dominion in the earth that God had originally given the family of mankind. Satan had the dominion for 42 generations. But when Jesus Christ came, he comes not just to die on the cross. You've got to know this as a believer. Jesus does not just come to forgive you of your sins and to become the sin offering for us that that allowed us relationship with God that was one of the purposes but not the only Jesus also came to strip the dominion away from the devil and give it back to the people of God so when Satan and Jesus first meet during his ministry the the sparring if you will for dominion begins. You'll remember Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Satan takes Jesus up to a high mountain and says, bow down and worship me. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the language is important. Satan says, all these kingdoms have been given over to me. Who gave them to him? Adam and Eve. And notice Jesus doesn't argue. Satan had the dominion. Jesus, Satan said, all these kingdoms have been given over to me, and, and this is a clue, I can give them to whoever I want. Because dominion must be taken, it must be possessed, it must be lived. If it doesn't, it can be given away. Okay, so he says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And it wasn't until Jesus was arrested that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't until he was arrested that you first start to see the signs of him slowly ripping the dominion away. But something interesting happened when he was arrested. The scripture says he was arrested. They took him to the judgment hall and they started interrogating him and peppering him with questions. He wouldn't answer, so they started ripping out his beard. He wouldn't answer, so they started spitting in his face and striking him. And yet, he wouldn't answer. The scripture says that he was silent as a lamb is silent before its shears. And you read the Bible and thought he was silent because he was being meek and humble. But you forgot that silence is the language of dominion. He was standing there in silence because he was going through the steps of the process to take back the dominion. And just like Satan was silent in the garden when he stole the dominion, Jesus is silent in the judgment hall when he is taking the dominion back. He wouldn't fully get it back until the cross, but he started getting, back, getting it back in the judgment hall when he was silent. When you begin to start to walk in dominion, one of the first things you begin to sense, it's just an internal thing, it's an innate thing, you get to sense what you don't need to respond to. Now this is a word for somebody. Somebody's being threatened and they're demanding a response. Stay silent as long as you can. Somebody's wanting you to speak on it and just let your mind and your thoughts be heard. But don't be snared by the words of your own mouth. Stay silent as long as you can. Because silence is one of the languages of dominion. Push your neighbor and say, stay silent. 
And then Jesus went from the judgment hall to the cross. And I want you to notice something. In the Garden of Eden, Adam makes excuses and passes the responsibility. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus accepts responsibility for a sin that didn't even belong to him. He prays to the Father and he says, if there's any way this bitter cup can pass, let it pass. But nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. I'll drink the cup. And Jesus took into himself the responsibility for all of our sins. For everything you've ever done wrong, everything you're doing wrong now, everything you will do wrong. Jesus accepted the responsibility of it into himself. And notice that Jesus did not suffer until he took the responsibility of all of our sins into himself. So that when he suffered, his suffering paid the debt. His suffering paid the price for our salvation and covers our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him that knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God by faith in him. And after he died, the scripture says he descended into hell where he took the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He took the dominion. And when he rose again, he rose with all power. The scripture teaches us that the same Jesus that descended then ascended. Now, I'm not talking about the ascension 40 days after the cross. He had an ascension before that ascension. On resurrection morning, the scripture says Mary came to him and he said, don't touch me. I haven't gone up to see my father yet. Jesus ascended into heaven, into heaven's courtroom and offered his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven, the place where judgment is decided. And that blood is still in heaven today testifying that though you are guilty, you are covered and innocent in God's eyes because you believe in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Calvary's cross. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, Daniel prophetically sees resurrection day. He sees it. Prophetically, Now, a lot of people confuse Daniel 7 thinking it's talking about end times like Revelation. No, Daniel was seeing what happened when Jesus ascended and offered his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven's court. Read it. He said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days. The ancient of days is God the Father, the judge. He said, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. They're having court. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. Fire in the scripture is a type of judgment. Next verse. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. That's the jury. And the court was seated and the books were open. That's the cases. All the cases against all of the sins of the world, of the, all the people that would ever believe in Jesus, that is. Next verse. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. That's the accuser of the brethren, the prosecuting attorney. But he says, I watched till the beast was slain. Now listen to this. In Daniel's vision, he sees four beasts. You have Satan. You have the spirit of Jezebel. You have the Antichrist, which is the unholy trinity. And then you have the child that they produced, which is sin and death. Okay? Daniel said, I watched until the beast was slain. Which beast was it? It was the beast of sin and death. On resurrection morning, the blood of Jesus Christ brought an end to sin and death. And its power over you was totally broken. All dominion that sin had over you before was totally 
totally broken when Jesus Christ offered his own blood on the mercy seat in heaven. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning flame. Next verse. As for the rest of the beast, the remaining three, they had their dominion taken away. What's the other three? You got Satan, you got spirit of Jezebel, you got the Antichrist. He says, their dominion was taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. That's how you know he's not talking about the, the same end of days that's in Revelation. Because at the end of days in Revelation, all the beasts die. Satan's bound, thrown to the fiery pit forever. This, this happened on resurrection day. So, so look at that. The beasts are still alive. Their lives are prolonged for a season. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, all of their dominion has been taken away. So you're dealing with a toothless lion. He may be walking around and he may be roaring, but he has no more dominion over you. Because on the morning of the resurrection, when Jesus walked into court, presented his own blood as evidence of your innocence and righteousness, all the enemy's power was ripped away next verse now I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he came to the ancient of days so the son has come to the father and they brought him near before him next verse then to him oh hallelujah to Jesus then to him was given dominion in other words, what Satan stole from Adam and Eve back in the garden and held for 42 generations, he lost on the morning of the resurrection when Jesus Christ appeared in heaven's court before God the Father, offered his own blood on the mercy seat. God stood up off his throne and ripped all of the dominion away from the enemy and gave all the dominion to Jesus. That's why he said, that all authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. He has all the dominion. Look at two people and say, he has all the dominion. Look at him with an attitude. Say, he has all the dominion. All right, I got 14 minutes. I'm going to get you out at 1140 if it kills me. The four gospels present... Stay with me, I'm going to go quick. The four Gospels present the birth, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in addition to this, each Gospel has a primary theme. Okay? Theme of Matthew. Jesus is king. Say it with me. Jesus is king. Matthew goes through painstaking trouble to trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to David, King David, to make the case that Jesus has a legitimate claim to the throne of Israel. Mark's theme is that Jesus is a miracle worker. Mark wants you to know he's not just king, but he's also a miracle worker. More miracles in Mark than any of the other Gospels. Luke wants you to know that Jesus is Savior. It's the primary theme, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's only Dr. Luke that recounts the three parables of lostness, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son. Now, the lost coin has no life in it. Say, no life. It doesn't know it's lost, and it cannot cry for help. It's a coin. So all the responsibility for finding it is placed on God. He sweeps the house and searches and seeks until it is found. Paul said, when we were dead in sins and trespasses, dead, no life in us, didn't know we were lost, had no life with which to call out and cry for help. God, while we were yet sinners, died for the ungodly, and you didn't find the Lord. The Lord came and found you. You didn't know you were lost. You didn't know you were broken. You didn't know you needed help, but he was looking for you when you were not looking for him. 
Then, lost sheep. Now, this level is a little bit more intimate. The sheep is someone who knows the shepherd, has a relationship with the shepherd, is following the shepherd. It's not rebellious. It didn't leave the shepherd. It's been following the shepherd, but just somewhere along the way, it got lost. Have you ever been following God, trying to do your best, but over the course of life, things happen, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in a dark place spiritually, and your saved, sanctified self is lost. Now, the sheep knows it's lost. But it doesn't have the strength to get back on its own. The sheep knows it's lost, but it can't even cry out for help. Because the same voice that would attract the shepherd would attract the predator. So the shepherd, Luke says, has to leave the 99 and go looking for the one that is lost. And every time I read it, it touches me because I think about all the times since I've been saved that I just got myself lost. But I notice that every time I get lost, the shepherd comes looking for me. I notice a few people in here this morning that, that have been lost along the way since you've been following the Lord. But hadn't the shepherd been faithful to always come and, and find you and bring you back home? Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. Now with the lost son, it's a little different. Because it's the most intimate relationship. More intimate than a man with his coin. More intimate than a shepherd with his sheep. This is a father and a son. Now in this case, the son is not lost due to location. The son has lost his mind. And the son has chosen to leave the father. And in this parable, the father doesn't go seek him. In this parable, the father doesn't go searching for him. The only thing a father can do when a son leaves is wait for him to come back home. So Luke tells us that after years of riotous living, the boy comes to himself remembers his father and says in the mess that I'm in I don't have to live this way I will return to my father and we find out that the father doesn't make him earn his way back in that when the father sees him from afar off just a flickering silhouette against the setting sun of the evening. The father starts running and tackles the boy and kisses him and puts his own robe and his own ring and his own sandals and restores him totally and then throws a party with a fatted calf that he started fattening up the day his boy left. Look at the anticipation of God. Seeing you walk off and say you're going to do life your own way. But scheduling a party the day you left knowing before it's over you were going to come back. Luke said he's a savior. But John, John says, am I doing all right? You doing okay? John says Jesus has dominion. All dominion. Settle down, boy. He starts by telling us about the dominion of the word. That before there was a Genesis in the beginning, in the beginning before Genesis, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by the word. And without the word, there was nothing made that was made. And in him was light. That light was the life of men. And the light shined in the darkness. And the darkness, watch the dominion, comprehended it not. Then in verse 14, John tells us that that word became flesh what we know is Jesus. John said the word is Jesus. And Jesus is 
the Word. There is no separation between the two. The Word is Jesus. And Jesus is the Word. Then that's John chapter 1. From John chapter 2 to John chapter 11, John will give seven signs of Jesus' dominion and the significance that they represent. Let's go through them quickly. I'm going to go in reverse. So from number seven to number one. Number seven, the raising of Lazarus. The sign that Jesus has dominion over death. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Lord, the one you love is sick. It's possible to be loved by Jesus and still be sick. Prophetically, this reveals that God has fallen in love with humanity. But humanity is sick. The sickness called sin leads to death. So Jesus would have to come into the world and lift up his voice and say, Lazarus, come forth in order for the one he loves to be raised from the dead. And that's what he did for me when he saved me. He called the dead man out of the tombs. That's what he did when he saved you. He called the dead man, the dead woman, out of the tombs. He woke you up spiritually and made you alive to the kingdom of God and the things of God. Number six, the man born blind. Jesus has dominion over darkness. Prophetically, this miracle reveals that mankind is born spiritually blind, unable to see and perceive the things of God. True vision is being able to sense and be aware of the presence and purpose of God in the earth. But we are born in sin. Therefore, we are born unable to perceive or see the things of God. But Jesus has come so that the blind may receive their sight through him. Number five, Jesus walking on water. Jesus has dominion over creation. The prophetic significance of this miracle, this sign, is the water was not holding Jesus up. Jesus was holding the water up. Hebrews 1 and 3 says, he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's revealing that creation is subject to him because he's the one holding it up. And then he really shows off when he invites Peter to come out and walk on the water with him. But make no mistake about it, Peter and Jesus ain't doing the same thing. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter is walking on the word. Because when Jesus said come, water had to briefly give up its properties and molecular structure and support the one walking on it because of the word Jesus had spoken. Jesus has dominion over creation. Number four, feeding the 5,000. Jesus has dominion over scarcity. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Prophetically, this reveals, this sign teaches us that not enough becomes more than enough when you put it in the hands of Jesus. This text also reveals that the power to feed the masses will always be found in the next generation. In other words, Jesus tells the disciples, go through the 5,000 men and find out how many loaves and fish you have. They come back and they say, none of the men had anything. And none of the disciples have anything. In fact, the only one in the whole bunch that has any raw materials for Jesus to work with is a little boy, a kid, a member of the next generation. He hasn't matured yet, hadn't hit puberty yet, has no teaching, has no training, has no license and no authority. All he's got is bread and fish. 
But when the next generation bring themselves to Jesus and present their gifts to him, the masses will be fed. And I got to studying and realized even the disciples were fed by the little boy's gift. And I want to tell you there's a gift in your children that when your children come to Jesus, oh, you got to make sure they come to Jesus. Because when your children come to Jesus, there are some miracles you can never receive until your children come to Jesus. You will be fed by the blessing you receive when your children come to Jesus. It's, a, it's the kind of miracle that removes scarcity. I pray, I pray every single day that my children are blessed with high finance to remove scarcity. Anywhere they go, just remove scarcity. You know what we could do in this community if we had a couple multi-millionaires with the last name sides? I pray it on them every day. Remove scarcity. That's what the little boy did with his sack lunch. He put it in the hands of Jesus, and Jesus just removed the scarcity. And then, last thing about it is, he made too much. Jesus always makes way too much. Scripture says they all ate and were filled and they had to take up 12 large basketfuls of leftovers. He is the exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think God. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. I'll cause people to give into your bosom if you will bless the kingdom of God. He's a too much God. Oh, push somebody say he's a too much God. Don't get nervous. I'm almost done. Push somebody say he's a too much God. Number three, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Third or fourth sign, actually. Jesus brings dominion to break victim mentalities. Oh, I got to get done. Jesus brings dominion to break victim mentalities. The prophetic significance of this is I'm closer to the door than you are. Um, you don't get to play the victim in the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God's got a lot of room for sinners. It just don't have no room for victims. Kingdom of God's got room for murderers and adulterers and rapists and terrorists and, and no matter what sin you can think of. But, but there's one thing it ain't got no room for. The kingdom of God has no room for victims. It's counterproductive for you to drive around with your bumper sticker, if God be for me, who can be against me? And yet every time we talk to you, you're talking about what's all against you. Which one is it? The pool of Bethesda is a unique place Scripture doesn't give us a lot of information about it. All we know is there was a bunch of sick and lame people, particularly around the pool on five porches that surrounded it. And one time a year at a certain season every year, an angel would come down, get in the pool, spin, dance in the pool, and trouble the water. And while the waters were troubled, whoever got into the pool first got healed. So Jesus walks up to this pool one day, and he sees a fella that's been laying there by the pool for 38 years. And Jesus asks him a revealing question. Do you want to be made well? Now, at first, it seems like an insulting question. You would think the response would be, of course I want to be made well. But do you? Sometimes people can build an identity around their dysfunction. 
And they tie themselves, themselves, to the brokenness they've been through. They can build financial support around it, you know, telling sob stories to people and soliciting pity. They, they can manipulate other people's emotions. Because every time you do something wrong and I confront you about what you did wrong, instead of dealing with what you did wrong, you go back and you pull out your sob story. You know? You know, you, you, got, you get caught stealing from the cash register at work and the boss brings you in and you go into, my father never loved me. This ain't about your father not loving you. This ain't about what you didn't have when you were five years old. This is about you taking cash out of the cash register. But some people hold that mess so tightly, you can't have a straight conversation with them because their mind is dominated by a victim mentality. I'm almost done. So Jesus comes up to him and says, I think he said it like this. Do you want to be made well? Why do I think that? The, the dude's been on the, the, the side of the porch. You couldn't get first in line in 38 years. Ain't that many people. It's been on the side of the porch for you. You couldn't roll. You couldn't shimmy. You couldn't beg for like a whole year and save up all your money of begging for a year and then pay some joker to kick you in when the angels started troubling the water? 38 years, you could have done something. Some of you have been doing nothing for too long and crying and feeling sorry for yourself and God is saying it's been 38 years. You could have done something. Do you want to be made whole? I got to get out of here. But, but, but Jesus said you, you want to be made whole and, and, he said, and he starts with the sob story. I, I have no man to put me in the water and I, and I can't walk. And and, and he starts sniffling and, and crying and telling him all the, and Jesus says, shut up. Rise, take up your bed and walk. words pick up the thing you've been laying on I said pick up the thing you've been laying on nursing your weakness because I ain't got no room for that the victim mentality has to be broken now you listen to me you are not a victim now you may have been victimized. Some stuff may have happened to you. Some bad stuff may have happened to you. But the moment you get connected with Jesus, you have been taken out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the dominion of the kingdom of the son that he loves. You've been made a joint heir with Christ and no weapon formed against you shall be able to prosper. You are not a victim. Look at somebody dead in their eye with boldness in your voice and say, you are not a victim. You didn't say it loud enough. I need 40 people with an attitude to look at some folks and say, you are not a victim. I can't help it. I feel something leaving this house right now. I feel slumped shoulders and depressed looks and I can't do it leaving the house right now in the name of Jesus. You are not a victim. And don't let your kids start buying into that mess either. Because 
the enemy will offer you that stuff early in your life he will try to tempt you into accepting that you are a victim and you can't do what other people can do because of what happened to you the devil is a liar there are no victims in this house there are no victims Are you trying to get me to deny my abuse? No, I'm trying to get you to affirm that by his stripes you are healed. Not just your physical body, but your emotional life and the things that happened in your past. Healing covers it all. Not a victim. Not a victim. I speak that you will no longer get mental endorphins from people feeling sorry for you. Oh, I said a thing right there. You'll no longer get mental energy and enjoy telling that sad story because it gives you something on the inside. The next time you tell that, I pray bile comes up in your mouth. I pray you get a sick taste in the back of your throat because you are not a victim. Number two, healing the centurion's servant. Jesus has dominion over distance. Centurion comes to Jesus, is an official soldier, and he says, Jesus, my servant is paralyzed. Jesus does unique miracles with the paralyzed in the Gospels to show us that anything paralyzed in your life can be brought back to movement through Jesus. That you don't have to suffer from emotional or spiritual or soulish paralysis. Not just going through life numb and, and just going through the motions because everything on the inside is paralyzed. Jesus has dominion over that. So the, servant, the centurion comes, my servant, he's at home, um, he's paralyzed. Jesus interrupts him and says, hey, I'll, I'll come to your house and heal him. The centurion says, no, it's a great distance away and I'm not worthy for you to travel that distance and I'm not even worthy for you to enter my home. But I am a man of authority. I command a regiment. And I know that I don't even have to be in the region if I just send orders. If I send my word and I sign it, then they have to do whatever I say. They obey me. And he said, I perceive the same authority that I have in the natural, you have in the spirit. So I don't need you to come to my house. All I want you to do is send the word. And I know my servant will be healed. In other words, you don't have to close the distance. And you don't have to come into the same room with me. Your word has so much dominion that if you'll send it from where you're standing right now, I know my servant will be healed. Jesus said, I ain't found this much faith in all of Jerusalem. He sends the word, man's servant's healed. Finally, number one, stand to your feet. Turning water into wine. Now, these... Uh, John chapter 2, after Jesus turns water into wine, John writes that this was the beginning of signs. And there were seven total between John chapter 2, John chapter 11. So we looked at all seven. This one, turning water into wine, um, let me just give you the two notes I have for this. 60 miles from Jerusalem... Cana of Galilee was known as a poor region, as a ghetto. The economy was broken and the people in that area were constantly running low or running out. 
And Jesus shows up to a wedding that's running out of wine. And the important thing I want you to notice about it is this wedding is happening on the Sea of Galilee. You know, Cana in Galilee. So they have plenty of what they need, water, but they've run out of what they want, wine. So prophetically, this text reveals that Jesus cares not just about what you need. He cares about what you want. And he cares about what you've run out of. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to my heart and said there'd be so many people here today that are running low or running out. I don't know what you're running low on. It may be patience. You had a week like I had, Lord Jesus. It may be finances, it may be energy. Maybe health, maybe peace in your home, maybe love in your marriage. I don't know where you're running low or where you're running out. But Jesus has dominion over what you are running out of. And I taught this series, these five messages concerning dominion. Because I believe in the body of Christ, we leave way too much on the table. We've been taught and drilled about salvation we receive from the cross but we're not walking in the dominion Jesus didn't just die to save us from our sins he died to give us back the dominion God intended us to have and I want you to take dominion in your life I want you to possess dominion in your life I want you to live in dominion I don't want you to be victimized another day in your life I don't want the enemy to steal, kill, or destroy anything else in your life. I don't want your dreams to be subject to demonic attacks you can't defend yourself from. I want you to know all the power you have as a blood-bought, sanctified, spirit-filled believer in Jesus Christ. You have dominion. Give the Lord a hand praise all over the house. Amen.